Now would you turn with me again please? I think we'll read Acts 17 again, just to put us in the picture, and then we'll go to 1 Thessalonians once again. Okay, Acts 17, we'll just read quickly these first few verses, just to remind you, as we are setting our hearts on going, as we just heard, to the ends of the earth, I really love that, uh, Going, as Paul said, you may remember when he wrote to the Romans, I want you to help me on my way to Spain. I guess he had Portugal also in mind. Uh, we're wanting to catch the atmosphere of the New Testament. That adventure, that going to big cities and planting churches and letting all that God has flow out from that. And this uh, young church, we want to really get in the atmosphere of the New Testament. So we'll just read quickly again, cutting through verse 1 of Acts 17. They came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews and according to Paul's custom he went to them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the scriptures explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead and saying this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Messiah the reigning king of heaven and glory. He is Israel's great king who has all authority in heaven and earth among all the nations. All right? When he just said he's the Christ, he wasn't just using a name. He's explaining a phenomenal thing that is happening. He's pronouncing a kingdom has broken out. He is the ruling sovereign Christ. Some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas along with a large number of the God-fearing Greeks and a number of the leading women. But the Jews, becoming jealous and taking along some wicked men from the marketplace, formed a mob and set the city in an uproar. And attacking the house of Jason, they were seeking to bring them out to the people. When they didn't find them, they began dragging Jason and some brethren before the city authorities, shouting, These men! who have upset the world, or as some translations have it, turned the world upside down, have come here also. And Jason has welcomed them. And they all act contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying, there is another king, Jesus. Now we're in 1 Thessalonians, please. It's wonderful to see the note of the coming of a church. There's another king. This isn't some personal, private thing. Or keep religion to yourself. This is a personal, devotional thing. We don't know about such things. No, no. There's another king. It's got huge political ramifications. So First Thessalonians, we'll quickly read it through again. Paul's letter, first letter to this young group of people who have now become Christians and formed a church. Paul and Silvanus and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith, labor of love, steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the presence of our God and Father. Knowing, brothers, beloved by God, his choice of you. For our gospel didn't come to you in word only, but also in power. And in the Holy Spirit, with full conviction, just as you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. You also became imitators of us and of our Lord, having received the words in much tribulation 
with the joy of the Holy Spirit. So that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you. Not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place. Your faith toward God has gone forth. So we've no need to say anything. For they themselves report about us what kind of a reception we had with you and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead. That is Jesus who rescues us from the wrath to come. Father, we thank you so much for your glory, your kingdom. Lord God, we so long for the fame of Jesus to be extended among the nations. Lord, when we think of Portugal never ever having a revival, never having even the memory of a Wesley or a Whitfield, never knowing the light shining. And Father, we come to you, Lord, and we think of our nation here in the UK in its desperate darkness. Lord, missing the way, losing the way so desperately. And Father, we earnestly pray for help We pray, let it rain. Let the Holy Spirit fall upon us, even as we open the scriptures together now. Lord, we would argue our case. Why wait, Lord? Why not today? Why not here? Why not, as we look at your word together, why not transform some lives, Lord? Father, I'm asking, won't you enlist some phenomenal warriors, even here this morning? Won't you captivate, please, Father, some hearts? Won't you rescue us? from this passing age, won't you set us free from our idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for Jesus with all our hearts. So Holy Spirit, won't you please, please Lord, come upon us. We thank you that you help the needy. We come to you Lord with all our need, all our frailty, all our weakness. And Jesus, we say you're our king, you're our great conqueror. Please come here this morning, do wonderful things. Come, transform lives to your great praise and glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So last, uh, yesterday morning, we looked at the gospel that created the church. The wonderful good news, the gospel that came not in word only, though we saw it's essential to see it is a message that has to be heard and understood. It doesn't just rub off. You don't just join the singing You need to comprehend it. You need to let this word do its work in you who believe. As Paul says in the second chapter, he said you didn't receive it as the word of men. But what it really is, the word of God that works in you, the power of the word of God, it works in you. It does stuff beyond just hearing a man speak. It's so important when we listen to preaching, we're saying, Father, please speak to me more than Terry speaks You speak to me right in my heart because his word goes to work on you. It wasn't in word only though, it was in power. The Holy Spirit turned up in Thessalonica. God came. That's what we need in Porto. That's what we need in Paris and elsewhere. We need God. Come with us, Lord. As Paul said to the Ephesian handful, have you received the Spirit? Is the Spirit here? Has the Spirit come to Ephesus yet? It's what the nations need, the coming of God by the Spirit. And so Paul came to this place where there was no church. There was no one in Christ there. No one at all. And he preached. And these people 
came to God. They turned from their idols. They came to know God. And so now Paul could write to the church that the gospel created. Right? The gospel creates the church. And the church spreads the gospel. So we're speaking, first of all, of a people with a new identity and a new address. Think of the thrill of the Apostle Paul thinking of this pagan city where there were no believers, where there was no church. And now, some months later, he can write a letter to the church that wasn't there. He's writing to a new community, something that never existed before. He's writing to a people of a new identity and with a new address. He calls them the church. Now, the word church, we're so familiar with it, but its roots go back into two worlds. One is a kind of religious context, the other a secular one. We'll quickly look at the religious one, the word ecclesia. We get ecclesiastical from it in our language. The Greek word ecclesia is from two words. Ek means out from and kaleo means to call. And so Paul is saying, you community, you are a called out people. I said it had a religious background because actually it goes back into Israel. The Jewish nation were also a called out people. They were called out of Egypt. They were called out of slavery. God went down to a community that he knew and loved a people nevertheless entrenched in Egypt's society, already getting uh, taken up with some of the idolatry of Egypt, losing their way sadly. And Moses came down as a great, great deliverer and called them out. And they became known, as it says in Acts 7.38, as the ecclesia in the wilderness. Most Bibles might translate it the congregation in the wilderness. But it's the same word, the church. The church, the called out people of God in the wilderness. Here's in the Old Testament, all those who were, yes, in Abraham, or at least Abraham's blood in them. They are a community, part of the promise made to their forefather Abraham. The blood of Abraham ran in their veins, and now God is saying, come out, call them out. And they celebrated. They said, what kind of God is this God? that can call a people from within a people. And they celebrated that God could do that. He could call them out, make them his own by mighty signs and wonders and demonstrations. He led them and made them his people. Now Paul is using similar language, writing to this pagan city. It had a synagogue, but the synagogue wouldn't receive him. We see only three weeks in the synagogue. He's thrown out of the synagogue. So now there's going to be another called out people On this occasion, no longer just those with the blood of Abraham in their veins, although we see Paul went first to the Jews, as he did to the synagogue for three weeks. But as they refused him, he turned to the Gentiles, and now there's another called out people. They're just as really called out as the Jews were out of Egypt. They heard God call them, no longer as a nation that was, but individuals. And so Paul says in verse 4, knowing, brethren, beloved of God, his choice of you. In the the beginning, it's always been that way, God chose Abraham. We don't read anywhere that Abram was a searcher after God, that he was seeking God. No, no, he's just an idolater like anyone else. But God called him. It's always that way around, dear friends. It's such a comfort to us, isn't it? Jesus said to his disciples, you didn't choose me. I chose you. 
We might like to sing, you know, sometimes, I've decided to follow Jesus. I've decided, well, great that you made such a decision, but I want to announce to you, God made the decision first. He chose you from the beginning to salvation, he says elsewhere. But he predestined you in love to adoption as a son to the praise of his glorious grace. He is the initiator. And so Paul can go into pagan cities. He could go to Corinth and the setbacks and difficulties and maybe he's fearful. And he says, the Lord came to me. The Lord stood by me in the night and said, don't fear, Paul. I've got many people in this city. And Paul could say, how could you say that? I've only just started and it's not going very well. Now God says in advance, I have many people in this city. Now go and get them. That's how we can go to Porto and other places. God can say from heaven, I've got many people in this city. It's great to hear Mark Driscoll say things like this. I believe God's got at least 30,000 in Seattle. I'm after them. To know in advance, hey, this God, this God, salvation is of the Lord. Absolutely. He makes it possible. He initiates. He chooses from the beginning. And so Paul says to the Thessalonians, and he went, had to go out there. He had to go through buffeting and, and persecution, as we saw yesterday. In the end, kind of thrown out of the city. But he can say this, God chose you. Hallelujah. So he's writing now to a people who have started to be not only called out from paganism and all that formally dictated their lives, but called into a group. The Ecclesia, the, the church of God. My people, God calls us. He loves to have a people for himself. That means called out, not from the slavery that Egypt provided, but the slavery of the culture. All its idolatry, its ignorance. The world captures people, ensnares them, teaches them a worldview without God. Teaches them a worldview of superstition, self-centeredness. And he's called them right out of it, into his people. We'll come back a little to that later on. But secondly, it was a political word, actually. The word ecclesia was not only used to describe the church in the New Testament. It was a political word. The way that Rome ran the nations was it set up city-states, major cities, like Philippi, Ephesus, Thessalonica, these were city-states, and they were run by city authorities. They were the authority in the place. So, for instance, in Acts 19, where there's a riot, because Paul's preaching is so successful that it's undermining the economy, that's how powerful Paul's arrival was, there's a riot by the silversmiths because they can't sell models and statues of Diana of the Ephesians anymore. Their whole economy is falling apart because who needs these statues? We found the living God. And they say, hey, get rid of these guys. And they cause a riot. And we read in Acts 19 that the Ephesian uproar, the assembly gathered. That is the city authority. That's the word ecclesia again. It's the ecclesia. It's the gathering with authority. It's the people who had weight. They had punch in the city. They had authority in the city. It's, an, it's used as a secular word. It's, on that occasion, it doesn't mean the church. And so, in a sense, Paul is borrowing this word from two backgrounds. One, yes, that Jewish religious background called out, but also an assembly with authority. A people with power. 
Obviously, not of this world. As Jesus said, my kingdom's not of this world. We don't take up the sword. But there is authority with the local church. So now Paul is writing to this group of people. And the testimony of them already was this. They act contrary to the decrees of Caesar. Saying there's another king. The church was revolutionary, dear friends. It wasn't a kind of religious cop-out. Oh, I go to church as well. To acknowledge Jesus is saviour of the world is to threaten allegiance to Caesar. Because Caesar also had that name, saviour of the world. That's what he was called. He was also called son of God. But actually, he's another son of God, Jesus, the Messiah, the son of God. And so when the church came in, dear friends, no wonder there was persecution, backlash. Just talking to some of our uh, Russian friends, like Pavel from Rosa in Moscow, and others, there's a testimony in the next magazine coming out. Our next New Frontiers magazine will be with you fairly soon. There's a testimony of one of our great Russian apostolic guys who was in Siberia and so on. I mean, they went through huge persecution. Why? They said, there's another king. They didn't say, we just got a private uh, religion, we got a church on... No, no, there's another king. Therefore, we cannot follow this king. We cannot go along with this. And as even in British society, there's a greater and greater drift away from the kind of Christian values that this society were built on, we're going to find, hey, I'm out of step with the culture. We're alienated. We become biblical in that we are aliens from the culture. It's not, well, it's a Christian country. You can take it for granted. Oh, it used to be. But it isn't anymore. We're right. That's why we've got to plant churches again and again. We don't just plant holy huddles to escape. We set up another kingdom to proclaim. And the church planting, hey, these guys were turning the world upside down. This is the initial breakthrough. God's reminded us this morning, we need to pick up that baton, the authentic biblical baton that went out among the nations saying there's another king, there's another way of living, there's another way for husbands and wives to live, there's another way to raise children, there's another way to live with integrity. It's completely different to the me first, serve yourself, look after number one, care for no one. It's another kind of culture. It's God's alternative society. That's why the church is so important, dear friends. That's why TV evangelism won't do it. We've got to have a culture, a people living together, totally different to others. The gospel produces a church, a community, another kind of city within the city, another kind of people. They live differently. They don't just bolt on church going. They are a new people, completely different. They didn't exist before Paul turned up. That's the excitement of apostolic evangelistic breakthrough. Here now is a community that did not previously exist. And as we pray for Porto and get behind this vision and have that in your heart, there can be a people, a city, a community that don't even exist yet. Let's pray, let's give, let's go. But that can happen. Paul is writing now to a completely new community, a new identity And he's writing to them at a new address. Interesting address. He writes to them, to the church. He's not looking for some building down the street, but a people. And then he gives them this address. In God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Imagine being the postman. You know, where do I deliver this? In God the Father. I'm writing this letter to the people who are in God the Father and in Christ Jesus. What an amazing address. There's a people now who when Paul went to that town, they didn't live there. They just lived in the world. Now they live in the Father and in the Christ. It's a breathtaking address. We just need to realize for Paul, who was a Hebrew of the Hebrews, to put any name next to God is breathtaking. The testimony of the Jews, which made them so distinctive, was, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. That was what made them somewhat attractive to certain Greeks and people around the world, that they thought, these, these people have got one God. So there were these proselytes, these people who who'd abandoned the idolatry of their day where there were dozens and dozens of God. And they thought, they thought this, these people have got something that's one God. Yeah. So they were somewhat drawn to Israel and began to claim that claim as, they, as Israel did. Here, O Israel, the Lord is one. There's one God. And now Paul, with all his Jewish background, is saying you are in God the Father and in the Lord. He's putting Jesus right next to the Father. We haven't time to get into this, but we just need to note it. And notice he's, he's, he's making God accessible. He's not just saying there is one God, he's Father. It's Jesus who taught us that. As we've been singing from that great hymn, based on that great prayer of Jesus, our Father in heaven. Jesus said, when you pray, say, Father. That was revolutionary. They wouldn't say the name God. The rule was, you must not take the name of the Lord in vain. And so they thought, best not to take it at all. So they talked about him in the heavens. But Jesus, when he prayed, said, Abba, Father. I can imagine his parents sometimes hearing him. Mary listening and thinking, when Jesus is praying, he says, Abba. He talked to God intimately. And then he said to his disciples, you say, Abba. You say, Daddy, Papa. It's like that little word in nearly every language. Talk to him tenderly, close. And when the Spirit comes, Jesus said, or at least when Paul said it in Galatians 4, the Spirit cries out, Abba. Something in our spirit makes us feel at home with God. We call him Father. And so he's saying, now you are at a new address. You are in the Father. It's not just what Jesus said, call him Father. It's what Jesus said, in that day you will know, told us this in John 14, uh, 10. In that day you will know, I am in the Father, the Father's in me, and I am in you. You're actually in the Father. He's not just a Father. Some part, when the Spirit comes to you, and this is going to be the difference, Jesus is saying, from having... Jesus of Nazareth standing next to you, giving you the bread to eat, putting his hand upon you, nevertheless going and sleeping somewhere else. And sometimes when you wake up, where's Jesus? Where's Jesus? Oh, there he is. Being with him. He said, in that day, he said, I won't leave you orphans. I'll come to you. They got used to having Jesus with them every day. This is the miracle of being a Christian, having Jesus with you every day. He said, but listen, I won't leave you orphans. I'm not going to be just a fading memory of what it was like to be with God. Remember when Jesus used to be with us? No, no, you'll be in me. He said, I won't leave you orphans, I'll come to you. 
And when he said, I'll come to you, what he meant was this. The Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he'll come to you and and I'll be with you by my Spirit. I'll be right among you. And you'll be in me. In fact, he said this. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I prepare a place for you, I'll come again to receive you to myself. That where I am, you can be also. You think, well, isn't that about when you die? Well, maybe. Is that what you think? You know, when it says in John 14, don't let your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house, there are many rooms. I go to prepare a place for you. I'll go and prepare a place. When I come again, I'll receive you. How do you think of that? You think, well, yeah, well, that's Jesus. He's getting a room ready for me in heaven. You know, he's kind of giving it a fresh lick of paint. He's pumping up the cushions, getting this room ready for you in heaven when you die. I'm not sure that's what it means in the context of John 14. When he says, in that day you will know. When the Spirit comes, you'll know. I'm in the Father. The Father's in me. And you're in me. I've got to prepare a place for you. I won't leave you. I'll come and receive you to myself. In my diary, in my Bible, I wrote in the margin, yes, Jesus, every day. He's prepared a place for us, a new address, so Paul can write to them. So the church of the Thessalonians, in the Father and in Christ Jesus. Beloved, we are in him by the Spirit. Jesus said, in that day you will know. In that day you'll know. When the Spirit comes, you'll know you are in the Father. You are in the Son. He's going to prepare a supernatural sphere, a place for us. I'll come and receive you to myself. The Spirit comes to receive us, to dwell in God. Or to use Paul's language, my life is hid with Christ in God. We've been raised together with him, seated with him in the heavenly sphere. Hallelujah. So here there's a people... In Thessalonica, they're not just trying to imitate Christ. They're not just trying to learn the rules. They live in him. Amen? We live in him. We enjoy being in him. Him being in us by the Spirit. He's prepared this place where we can dwell in God together. Hallelujah. Amen? Glory. Let's live there. Let's See, how are we going to do this thing without being in Jesus? How are we going to set up this new community? How are we going to live this new life if we don't know this new address of being in the Spirit, in the Father, in the Son, in God? That's who we are. We're a supernatural community. We're not just a do-good club. Without the power of God, without the new address, without dwelling in Him, it's all pretty hard work. God has made it possible through Christ, his blood, his death, his resurrection. It's the Holy Spirit who makes all these objective truths real in our experience. And so he says, now stay in me and I in you. He goes on, see John 15, abide. We we use the word abide as though it was a religious term. It just means stay there. Stay in me, I'll stay in you. If you stay in me, you stay in this new address, you'll bear lots of fruit. Just stay here. Keep it here, close with me. Stay in me. Let my word stay in you. I'll stay in you. You'll bear loads of fruit. It's a new address. So Paul writes to a people, a called out community, ecclesia, called out to a new address in the Father and in the Son. Hallelujah. People restored to God as Father, acknowledging the government of God, acknowledging there's another king, not Caesar. There's another king, not the modern drift. 
We're not looking for a change of government. We don't have to elect anyone else. He's reigning forever, as we've been singing. And we're in his kingdom. Hallelujah. Okay, so here's a new community living with a new identity and a new address. Next, they have a new lifestyle and a new purpose. And Paul celebrates their work of faith. He says in verse 3, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith, your labor of love, and the steadfastness of your hope in the Lord Jesus Christ, in the presence of our God and Father. So he's celebrating these people have not just received a message, they're now living a new lifestyle. It's a lifestyle characterized by love and hope and faith. These are the characteristics now of the new community. That's what should be over your church, your ecclesia, and mine, and everyone. There are people who live a new lifestyle. They're involved in a work of faith, is the first thing he mentions. A work of faith. We're now sons of God. And you remember when God created Adam, the son of God he's called, he gave him a job to do. He said, I want you to serve. I want you to work in this garden. And to work for God is just simply appropriate. They're now involved in working for God. And in writing, Paul uh, turns this phrase, if you like, into all kinds of contexts. He talks about how we work in the workplace. He says even to slaves. He says, not serving as I pleases, but serving the Lord. So somehow he sanctifies the workplace. He's not just talking about when we work in the church, though that's great. He's saying that now our work... Everything we do, all that we labor, we add, we sanctify it. We say, I'm not just doing this because I'm pleasing men. I'm not, not just working up to five o'clock or whatever it is to keep this guy happy. The, I've brought God right into my life. Everything I do now is for the Lord. It may be I work for the same boss. It may be I'm in the same firm. It may be I'm not going as a, what we call a missionary sometimes. I'm here. God's called me here. God's called me to earn a salary. God's called me to give generously to his work. I'm going to work here. But it's no longer that I serve this firm or I serve my own ambitions. I serve the Lord. It's become a work of faith. It's transformed our lives, even if our life is still being lived in the same place. We're in a new address in our heart. We're serving a new king in our work. Is that how you see it? You see, we can, we can drift in and out of this sometimes, dear friends, especially as regards work. I want to call you afresh at this Bible weekend as we're together here. Hey, come on, let's live for God. Let's be distinctively different. Let's shock those around us by our style. Let people take note. That guy, that woman, there's such, in, there's such integrity. They're not into the office gossip they're not wasting time. They're not cheating. There's a work going on. And it's faith. It's based on God's grace with us in what we do. We're doing it by faith. We're doing it because we believe that God rewards what we do. We believe we're doing something that is pleasing to him. Also, he says, a labor of love. He says, I celebrate your labor of love. He realizes that what they're doing, even in their church life together, is motivated by love. And of course, it was Paul who also wrote 1 Corinthians 13, which says we can do all kinds of religious things. But if they're without love, he uses incredible language. He says they are nothing. 
nothing, null and void. And he goes through a charismatic list. He talks about speaking in tongues, he talks about prophesying, faith to remove mountains, giving all that we've got. He said, if it's without love, it's dull routine, it's nothing. It's a very scary statement, it's nothing. But he says, I celebrate yours as a labor of love. So much hard work to put on a conference like this. Phenomenal. Absolutely phenomenal. And when we finished Stonely at the end, I remember chatting to Nigel Ring. And he said, do you know in the end there were a thousand tasks. There were a thousand job descriptions in the running of Stonely that you could identify. That person does that. That's... You think, wow, the work behind a weekend like this. And it's not just while we're here either. Secretaries and people behind the scenes writing letters, booking places, thinking it through. But what God wants is, oh, we have to do this jolly thing. Oh, they're doing this now, flipping tent. If you get a tent now, field, all these people, it's such a pain. No, 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 there's nothing. God says, if it's without love, it's nothing, nothing. I worked all day. It's nothing. Why? Because it wasn't with love. It doesn't look like the new community. But Paul doesn't say that about this. He says, I'm so thrilled with you. I know it's a labor of love. You're so amazed at God. You're so grateful. And the steadfastness of your hope. He says, you're steadfast, but it's based on hope. We've got solid hope. So these three things that are repeated again and again in the New Testament, love, faith, and hope. They're there again and again and again. Sadly, in Ephesians, I beg pardon, when Jesus wrote to the Ephesians, in Revelation chapter 2, he wrote to the church at Ephesus and he said this, I know your labor. I know your work. I know your steadfastness. And he gives a list, actually, of pretty faithful things. You know, you seek out people with false doctrine, you find them out. He says, wow. He said, I'm really impressed. It's interesting, he says, your labor, your work, your steadfastness. But in none of them does he say your labor of love, your work of faith, steadfastness of your hope. No, the, the love, faith, hope have gone and the shell is still there. They're laboring, but ugh, they're working. But, they're steadfastly, doggedly going on. But Jesus says, unless you come back to the love you had at first. Because it's the same three words that Paul uses here. Your labor, your work, your steadfastness. But it's not a labor of love anymore. It's just getting on with it. He says, unless you come back to the love you had at first, I will remove your lampstand from you. That's a terrifying statement. See, sometimes you look around our nation, you see these closed buildings, what used to be a church, and the architecture betrays that was a church once. It's a library, it's a museum, it's a mosque, warehouse. Remember, look at that, it used to be a church. Satan's closed them all. Well, I don't know. You look through the Bible, I'm not sure Satan's got authority to close churches. Jesus has. Jesus says, if you don't come back to the love, I will take away your lampstand. Does that mean when you get there next week, hey, you can't get in here. Can't get in the building. What's happened? No, you can get in. You can have a service. But Jesus took the lampstand. 
I'd hate to be the pastor of a church that Jesus has taken the lampstand away from. It won't last long, but it can linger, linger. It says of Saul, one day God said to Saul, today I take the kingdom from you. Does that mean Saul couldn't get to the throne the next day? Couldn't get in the palace? Not at all. He's on the throne, he's in the palace, but God has taken the kingdom from him. Beloved, we need to make sure that we're laboring with love and steadfastness based on hope. We're working with faith. We're not going through the dull routine. So oh, why do we have to do this? God hates it. God says, I hate lukewarmness. And the two churches that get threatened with closure, like the Laodicean church, he says, you're neither hot nor cold, you're lukewarm. I want to uh, vomit you out. It doesn't say spit, it says vomit, which is the most powerful reaction of your body that can happen to you. God hates routine, dull lukewarmness. So I wish you were cold or hot. How are you getting on, dear friends? You find yourself thinking, oh, I have to go through this. Flipping camping, last time I'm doing this. You say, no, no, come on, we're going to go through this. Why? Well, we've got something, we're after something. We just heard this outstanding testimony about Porto. We had an opportunity to be exposed to apostolic vision, prophetic. Hey, we're not just running our little church. We're part of something that's going to take the world. We can touch nations for God, cities, university cities. It's magnificent. We get exposed to something bigger than ourselves. Let's get here. Let's double this size next year. I was thrilled to hear that the first one that Jeremy started, Jeremy Simpkins up in the north, they started with 500, I think, four years ago. And each year, they've gone up and up and up, and this year, 2,000. We can easily be 2,000 here. So we can all get caught up in the vision afresh and go for what God has for us. So it's a work of faith. It's a steadfastness of hope. It's a labor of love. I believe that has characterized so much that's been going on. Let's make sure it's shot through every one of our hearts. Amen? And then he says this, you became imitators of us, so you became a model for others. You know, people do learn through imitation. They really do. And that's where consistency is so important. It's like when we say, well, we start at 10 o'clock. You know, every Sunday at church, but... We say we started, but if you turn up at ten past, oh, I see what you mean is ten past. Or whatever the thing is, it's what you do that gets imitated, not what you say. And so imitation is being worthy of being followed. So Paul says, you imitated us, because Paul was worth imitating, which is pretty challenging to all of us. When we hear phrases like passing on a baton, you think that baton that Jesus gave... To the early 12, boy, was that a clear, sharp, wow, Jesus' life. What you've seen me do, you do. And then Paul still got the thing. He can say, now listen, you watch what I do, come on, imitate. But, oh, as it's got down through the generations, oh, Jesus, please restore to us the magnificence of the baton that you passed on. We want to be imitators, and we need to be excellent examples. Not only individually, but as churches. That when people come on vacation or that sort of thing, they look into your church and say, wow, look at this. Look at this. 
I had a lovely letter from Mark Driscoll after Brighton. He wrote to us, some of us were together on a mission, and he, he said this, I learned more at the Brighton conference in one week than I have ever learned in one week throughout my whole life. And as you were there, I kept hearing him say, you guys sing, you guys do this, you guys... He was observing things, even as we've observed phenomenal things in his ministry. We need to be worth imitating, dear friends. We want to put model churches in the place, in Porto, in Paris, and on and on and on. In Bournemouth, in Winchester. People coming to college in Winchester, we want to see their lives turned around. In Poole and Southampton and all the places where you are, scattered around here. Let's be exemplary churches. The people think, can church be like that? Can church be like that? When we started some celebrations in a town hall in Hove many years ago, a pastor came from a nearby town and visited me and he said to me, I'd like you to stop those meetings. I said, well, why do you want me to stop them? I said, you know, there's a thousand plus gathering. He said, because my young people come to them and they love it. And you know this, he said, church could never be like that. I thought, oh, no, no, no. Actually, I'm rather disappointed with the meeting so far. Church will certainly be like that. Many of us, dear friends, have had to fight to get church out of the doldrums, formality, legalism. Beloved, next generation, come on, let's keep going for it. Let's build great, great churches to the glory of God. Let's look last of all then at how he uh, sees their characteristics. He said, they report, this is what gets imitated, we're down to the last two verses now. They report about you, what kind of reception we have with you. This is what characterized this young church. You turn to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven. Let's look at those three phases. You turned from idols. Paul went out into a world dominated by idolatry. It was costly to turn away from idols because idols were often associated with the trades in which people worked, like trade union situations, if I can put it that way in a modern terminology, but not really like that. The companies were associated in certain formations in the society. If you work for a certain business, it would be part of that uh, formulation of businesses, and associated with that business would be a number of idols. It was part of the way in which you did business in those days. Idolatry was right in the community. You couldn't just ignore it. And so when you became a believer and you headed up a business and you said, no, well, we actually were no longer going to donate to that idol. We're no longer going to be at those temple uh, uh, affairs. We're no longer going to get involved in the temple uh, celebration of our business. And we thank that great God, that idol that has blessed our business in this city. All the nonsense that went off, they said, no, we're turning away from it. That was costly. That could have huge ramifications for your business. So turning from idols was a major, major thing. As we saw in the Ephesian thing I made passing reference to, idolatry affected the whole economy. And when people turn from idolatry, the economy begins to feel the impact. We're not talking about private religion. We're saying there's another king. And so they turned from idols. The word turn, Paul and Luke often use it to describe conversion. Let me just remind you of one or two verses. Acts 9, 38, they turned to the Lord. 
Acts 11.21, a large number who believed turned to the Lord. Again, Paul's very commission from God in Acts 26 to turn them from darkness to light, from the power of this world to God, from Satan to God, to turn them. Conversion, dear friends, is turning. And I know for myself, when I got saved, I got saved on a different message, really. I was in my late teens, and I was invited, would you like to ask Jesus into your heart? Which was common language at that time, and probably still is for many. You can ask Jesus into your heart. And you know, asking someone into your heart didn't require turning. And I know for myself, I'm going along this lifestyle, and actually, before I came away, I just looked at my diary of the year I was saved. I flicked through, I've still got old diaries. And I'm flicking through the pages of the year I got saved. And it's got a note, went to church, went to, keeps on saying Sunday, went to church, went to church, went to church. It's a new entry in the, in the diary. But the rest of it is exactly the same. It's exactly the same. Nothing else has changed. Went to church, but I'm not turning. I've got Jesus with me now, and I'm still going the same way. It's just so clear to see. I think, gosh, nothing changed. I looked at it reflectively, actually not thinking of this sermon now. It just suddenly comes to mind. But I looked, I thought, gosh, my life didn't change at all. Except it now says went to church. I just asked Jesus on board. And I kept going the same way. So for me, it took another crisis about six years later, maybe five years later. In one meeting, when a guy preached and really radically got hold of my heart. And I felt God said to me, are you for me or not? I've called you. Are you going to live for me or not? And I would say this, for the first time, something of the fear of the Lord got hold of me. I felt a kind of real awesome awareness. God was speaking to me. Like, what are you playing with? I thought you said you could, I could have your life. And actually, I'd been baptized, and I, I kind of meant it. And I was excited. Wow, I never knew that you could be forgiven. You could go to heaven. I mean, the whole thing excited me. I went forward, and wow. But the diary shows life change, didn't change. Five years later, diary changes totally. I mean, absolutely, completely. Why? Because there came this moment of absolute conviction. My lifestyle is completely wrong. I need to turn, turn, turn. Which meant turning away. For me, it meant turning away from friends that I really loved. I've been with for years. Guys I'd known, we knew one another. My life was integrated with theirs. But our language was disgusting. Every sentence of mine would have included all kinds of foul language all the time. I mean, every sentence. It's the way we talked. It's the way we were. The things we went for, the places we went, the way we lived, I carried on doing it. At work, no one knew I was a Christian. I joined in the language, the fun, the jokes, the laughter at the coffee breaks. But I went to church on Sunday because I lost Jesus into my heart. But I hadn't turned. And for me, there came a moment when I had to turn away and it was very painful I lost all my friends overnight I lost a relationship with a girl overnight, the whole thing, suddenly I was absolutely alone I remember sitting at home on my first Saturday night 
not going to Brighton. And Brighton nightlife captivated me. I live for Brighton nightlife. That was where I lived. That's where all my joy came from. It was great having Jesus and that. But it, it never worked. I kept feeling convicted and, you know, sorry, Lord, again, I messed up. And I'm like, oh, sorry again, sorry again. Thank you for your forgiveness. Sorry again, mess up again, mess up again, mess up again. I needed to turn. Have you turned? Turn from idols. You might, well, I didn't have any idols. I wasn't polishing anything in my bedroom at night that was an idol. But I was devoted to a lifestyle that had my allegiance. You know, it can be very subtle, dear friends. God is looking for worshippers. Jesus said in John 4, doesn't say God is seeking converts. He's seeking worshippers. Because it's so funny, isn't it? Sometimes we talk to our, about our kids, the way you dress, the way you do this, you, you worship. We use the language carelessly. You know, you buy all these albums, you dress like him, you're listening, all that. you worship him. But you know, some of us, we worship all kinds of things. When you, when you want to know, what do I worship? Well, ask yourself, what's the worst possible nightmare for you? What is it you could not live without? Just imagine, life without that would not be worth living. I remember one or two friends whose engagements fell through and the partner said, I don't know if I want to live anymore. I can't imagine living without that person. I don't know if I want to wake up in the morning. A guy called Tim Keller gives this illustration. He says, a girl in his church said this. And he said, she's a good girl. She's at all the meetings. She knows the Lord. She loves the gospel. But she said to him one day, she said to him, Pastor, I know it all. I love Jesus. I know I'm going to heaven. But if none of the guys at college ever give me a second look, what's the point? For her, finding some sort of interest from the males would have... That was what she wanted more than anything. She said, I know about God. I know about Jesus. But none of the guys want me. None of the guys look at me. It's like, that's the, what am I looking for? Where do I find... My fulfillment. What is it really has won my heart? That's, if only I could have that. If only I could have that. Then I'd be all right. I did a student weekend for the Wessex students a few months ago. We had an open question time. And one of the questions that was asked was this. If you don't have any kind of boy or girlfriend relationship, you just don't have one, how can you learn about love? It's like if somehow that could be my stepping stone to knowing God. How can you cope without a boyfriend, without a girlfriend? How do you cope? And I had to honestly say, it was when I lost everything. And I really did. All my friends and a girl. I found Jesus like I'd never found him before. I learned to love him. I learned to worship him. I learned to steal away to Jesus. Just to be with him. Just to be... Because I got baptized in the Spirit very soon after this tragedy for me. This loss of everything. I got flooded with the Spirit. I thought, oh boy. I used to come home, go to my room at night. Just to go, wow, Jesus. Oh, I never knew you could be this close. Oh, And in my loneliness, I found Jesus. In my loss of all my gods. I wouldn't have used that language at the time. 
But it's true at the loss of all that. I found Jesus like I never found him before. And it put a foundation in my life that has lasted for decades. I'm a worshipper of Jesus. I don't just, I'm not just a busy guy. I love him. I've turned from idols. I love him. And if he hasn't won your heart, you're still in danger. Because you could suddenly love money. Or you could suddenly be interested in a woman who's not your wife. Or you could suddenly see a sympathetic man. And my husband's so cold and hostile. And I need, I just, no, no, no. While you're needing, you haven't found Jesus. Oh, you, oh I haven't saved years ago. No, no, you haven't found him. Because you're looking for a God who can satisfy you. Jesus satisfies. That's not jargon, that's life. And so we need to turn from our idols. To say that which I most value. Hey, what is it I most value? Again, Tim Keller gives this illustration of a, a woman in his church who's really upset with her husband. So upset and keeps on giving him a hard time there in the church, but she's always on at him. And this son seems to come to the surface. If you don't get right with God, our son will lose the way. Our son, our son. And as he listened more and more, he thought, hey, wait a minute, I can hear something coming through. This woman has put all her focus on her son. For her son to be successful, for her son to really be all that she wants him to be, was now her idol above everything else. And so much so, she just gave her husband a hard time. If you don't, my, our son, our son, always on at him. You don't do this, you don't do that. And in the end, Keller felt God gave him insight and spoke to her. And by the grace of God, she saw it and heard it. And she suddenly realized, yeah, this to me, everything is that he succeeds. That's where my joy is. That's what I focused on. That's my idol. And she had to repent. I'd seen on Jesus, you're my, you're my Lord, you're my fulfillment. Knowing you is everything. And she got wonderfully into fellowship with her husband like never before. They got really reconciled and pray on for their son and so on. But it's no longer an ugly thing that's pulling her, driving her, getting everything else distorted. We turn from idols to serve, I must go on past that, to serve a living God. I want to just come to the last phrase, sorry I'm late. And to wait for his son from heaven. I want to just come there. To wait for his son from heaven. We must understand this, that in our Christian life there is still a waiting. There's a waiting. I love that what to me is a totally new song we've been singing here. I think we sang it second song this morning. It talks about Jesus. He's coming. We're waiting for his coming. That his coming is, you know, he's reigning. When we see him, we're going to be like him. There's a waiting. The Christian life, dear friends, is a waiting. It really is. It's not press button, now we've arrived. It really isn't. There is a waiting. He says, you've turned from idols to serve the living and true God, labor of love, etc., and to wait. I've, we've been transformed, dear friends, from the immediate to we're waiting. We've got an eternal perspective. We're waiting for the sun from heaven because this isn't it. This is not it. The wonder is this, even now we are the sons of God, but it does not yet appear what we shall be. We've got to understand that now and not yet. Now we are the sons of God. Breathtaking, amazing. But we're not yet what we shall be. When we see him, we'll be transformed, we'll be like him. Glory will open up. As Mother Teresa says, 
from the perspective of glory, this life will seem like one night in a bad hotel. (laughs) Or even in a tent, maybe. Anyway, when glory opens up, and they said, we're waiting, we're waiting. And while we're in this world, Paul says in Romans 8, 18, the suffering of this present age. It's important to adjust your NIV when it talks about our present sufferings, which sounds like things that happen, seem to be happening at the moment. What it literally says, the sufferings of this present age. This present age, this passing age is associated with suffering. That's why we're waiting. This is not it. That's why we must not be annihilated by this sudden suffering. And Peter says things like this, you mustn't be surprised at the fiery trial as though some strange thing had happened to you. So you can get a gospel, and I was just in the USA walking around some Christian bookshops, and the, and the books say things like this, how you can be the real you, thorough success now. I mean, it's a message that just says, you can be even better, happier, more successful now. Life, enjoy it. It's not got the Bible feel, which in this present age you may suffer. You may experience pain. There's nothing about that. But the Bible, we need to be character, true to the Bible. Otherwise, when something terrible happens, what happened? My gospel says this shouldn't happen to me. Paul says... Now we're the sons of God, but not yet what we shall be. So our next magazine that will be in your hands soon is about suffering. Has the testimony of the terrific family from Lowestoft, whose two teenage daughters, as they were driving home up the A12, were smashed to death by a drunken driver coming the other way. Two, I mean, not just one, two, they're two teenage girls, beautiful girls, gone. And the father's written a book called A12 to Heaven, I think. It's a number of the road, the A12. And he says, he just talks about the first phone call from the hospital. You know, just realize, God, they've gone. They've gone. I thought we were going to share their lives. I thought I was going to take them down the aisle. They've gone. Because we're still waiting. The sufferings of this present age in this frail world. We're living in a frail world. Paul says this, 2 Corinthians 5.1, this earthly tent very current, which is our house, if it's torn down, we have a building from God. In this we groan, longing to be clothed. You know, you could be groaning in your tent, longing for a house. This is very current, isn't it? Last night, oh, tent. Paul uses that language. He says, you are groaning. He's saying, God, it's a tent. Not only is it cold and, you know, but also someone could trip over the tent peg. The whole thing could come down. This tent we live in, that's how Paul describes this present life. He says, this tent, we groan in it. Oh, grief, a tent. Why? Longing for our building from God. We're waiting. We're waiting, dear friends, for the best. We're waiting for the best. I should be in Izmir in a few weeks' time with our church from Turkey and some of their friends were giving out tracts last year and got killed by the Muslims. Guys by from another church giving out literature just where they had been giving out literature. Could have been the first New Frontiers martyrs. But they can do that. So we're going out again. Why? Well, 
<laughs> we're going to live forever. We're going to live forever. We'll be transformed. We heard the great song. And so, dear friends, as we go on world mission, Dave Devonish has just got back from Pakistan again. Pervez, when they go to church now in Pakistan, they have police protection from the Islamists there in Pakistan. In Kerala recently, Robin goes to church in Kerala and 30 communists, I thought they got it wrong, I thought it must be Hindu fundamental, no, no, communists broke in, tore things down, started beating people up. These are our people, our friends, they're in Brighton, they're together on a mission. But we have an eternal dwelling. This isn't it, this is great, but this isn't it. For some of us, it's not so great, it's hard and heartrending and lonely and bereaved and because bereavement will come to all of us mustn't be a shock we're waiting glory's ahead so we have a completely different address completely different expectations we're in a frail world we're in a fallen world we're in a persecuted world we're waiting and just to conclude this paul says in romans 8 listen the whole world is groaning the whole world is waiting And he says, in that sense, we are in step with the creation. The creation somehow knows that when the curse came, when Adam sinned, God didn't just uh, uh, declare them fallen. He cursed the whole creation. The whole creation is cursed. Now, I've just had the privilege of being in Montana, and I looked at these mountains and the snow-capped peaks, and I think, wow, this is so beautiful. God says, it's cursed. You want to see how beautiful it was? You go to Switzerland, you look at beautiful places, Wow, God says, no, no, it's cursed actually. It's all out of step. It's all groaning. And the Bible says in Romans 8, the whole creation is groaning, waiting. And then he uses another phrase, he says, striving on tiptoe. What's it waiting for? It's waiting for our being glorified. It's waiting for us, the children of God, to come into our full inheritance. And when we come into our full inheritance, the whole creation will be restored. The regeneration of all things. Behold, I make all things new. He is the beginning of that new creation. It's happening. We in Christ are new creation. But ultimately, the whole creation is going to be restored. New heavens, new earth, new bodies, forever and ever and ever. Hallelujah. These are what things that lie ahead. And so Paul says this, creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay. It's kind of out of step. It's futile. It's been subjected to futility, says in Romans 8. Ecclesiastes says this, and the wise man looks around and he said, futile, futile. Everything's futile. Under the sun. Not under God's eyes, but everything in this world is out of step. Creation's out of step with God. We were in it, dear friends. We were part of it. And God called us. Hallelujah. He called us with a holy calling. He said, now be my people. Be my church. Be my called out community. Be my people with authority. My ecclesia. My ecclesia in Bournemouth. My ecclesia in Winchester and on. My ecclesia in Porto. My called out community who are in the Father and in the Son, dwelling in a new spiritual address, in God, God in them. Hallelujah. The Holy Spirit flooding our lives. All kinds of supernatural possibilities surrounding us. Serving the living, true God with love and joy and faith. Enduring hardship. Yet even the hardship of camping. 
for his sake, for his glory, to be exposed to what he wants to say to us. Why? Well, because we've turned from what was our idol, where we'd pinned our hopes, that career, that promotion, that degree, that girl, that guy, whatever it is that you think, without him, what's your nightmare? I couldn't live without. What is it you can't live without? I know, turn from all that that's futile. Can't satisfy you, actually. I thought I was going to get that far in my sport, in my career. I'd pin my hopes. Turn from your idol to serve the living and true God and to wait for Jesus. What a calling, dear friends. What a calling. Let's stand and pray.